So the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called Strength to Strength. Uh, Actually, from the beginning of the year, we've been asking this question, how do we have a walk with Jesus that really is a walk? How do we have a walk with Jesus that's a journey, that's always going from one level to the next, um, from strength to strength, as Psalm 84 describes it? And, you know, when we talk about uh, this journey with Jesus, what we're really talking about is we're talking about being a disciple. Being a disciple is more than just subscribing to a list of, of ideas, right? Being a disciple is following a person, and his name is Jesus. You know, when you think about discipling someone, or when you think about being discipled yourself, or maybe when you think about discipling efforts of a church and stuff like that, what, what kinds of things come to your mind? Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you think of follow-up events after an evangelistic series or something. Uh, maybe you think of a Bible-marking Bible study course. Or maybe you think about uh, just classes where a new believer is uh, more solidified in their doctrinal beliefs or things like that. But I would say that while those things are in part a portion or a part of the experience of being discipled, um, discipling is really more about a relationship, a relationship that grows in a relationship that goes from strength to strength. And so here, Castle Rock is really, that's what we really want to gear towards. That's what we want to go towards. Our, our, all our programming, all our small groups, all the things that we're doing, they're environments. They're environments for us to go from strength to strength. And I don't know if you've been experiencing that this year. Um, I don't know if you've been struggling with that this year. But I really want to encourage you, let's keep journeying together. Um, so in January, what we did, so for those of you who are just kind of catching up with this, uh, you can... Check out the sermons on, on the website, castlerockadventist.church slash sermons. Um, and for the, for the entire month of January, we basically focused on habits of personal devotion. Things that I can do in my quiet time with Jesus when I'm praying, when I'm studying, and I don't have a preacher in front of me. How do I keep growing in Jesus and seeking God? And, and now as we've turned the corner here into February, we're turning the corner, the shifting the focus from seeking God in our discipleship and now sharing life in our discipleship. And this might be kind of uh, new territory, but I really want to encourage you to expand your picture of what discipleship is about. It's not just, am I growing in my relationship with God? But I would submit that when we follow Jesus, he calls us to himself, but he also calls us to the community with which he is leading. Think about the disciples. When he called those 12 disciples, how many did he call? I I guess I just kind of said that. When he called the disciples, how many did he call? (laughs) He called 12. He called 12. And he didn't have office hours for one at a time. He called each one to be with him and to be with each other. This is huge. As I was thinking about this 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 week, I realized that the the first, uh, the initial tastes of coming alive in Jesus in my life were surrounded by people who are also seeking Jesus. When I was a freshman, 14-year-old freshman in high school, I started reading the Bible for myself. And I went to this prayer conference. And coming home from the prayer conference, uh, I was riding in a van. And there was a senior sitting next to me. A big, big, cool senior. <laughs> and he said, Godfrey, God has special plans for your life. I'm like, whoa. You know, there was someone else that was speaking into my life. And he actually invited me to a small group Bible study that was held at the house of the school's business manager. Pretty awesome. And she was the first person to actually show me some chords on the guitar. And we opened up the Bible together and we started studying things. And it was a small group of people. Debbie was actually a part of that. Where is she? Anyways, yeah, Debbie was a part of that. Um, Debbie Phillips back in the day. Anyways. <laughs> and... Um, I don't know, that, that kind of sense of community, those relationships were, were just as important as me actually opening up my Bible and hearing from God. Do you see how, how that happens? When I was uh, just in my first few years of ministry, um, getting to hang out with uh, this, this young man, Steve Hamilton, and um, he actually kind of pulled me along into different programs and stuff. One of the programs that we did was something called Teen Bible Academy, where we would take you know, a dozen or more teenagers out of their environment and give them three weeks of solitude with God, studying the Bible, and serving Him too. And it was just an amazing experience, and one of those things where, where people dug deep and actually had a real living experience with Jesus. But again, it wasn't office hours with each of those individually teenagers. What ended up happening is that one of the most important 
components of those programs. A, program, or a component that we really couldn't script was the component of community. It was the component of kid actually connecting with staff, staff connecting with kid, kid being able to invest in and support and encourage the other peers around them. These were the kinds of things that really made for discipleship. So when you're thinking about your discipleship journey, yeah, think about the habits that you have of your personal devotions. Think about your prayer life. Think about how you study the Bible. Think about how you, how you obey God in your personal decisions. But think about also how you share life. How do you share life? And so that's what we want to talk about. Last week we kind of started diving into that concept. But today we're going to talk about uh, interpersonal dynamics when it gets heated. Does that ever happen? Am I the only one who experiences interpersonal dynamics that are more like interpersonal firefighting (laughs) and conflicts? Um, And today we're going to talk about this, not just so that we can live more happily ever after as a church. It's not just a matter of a pastor wants a convenient church that's not, (laughs) no, it's not, it's not about that. We need to talk about how to love each other well. Do you hear me? We need to talk about how to love each other well. Because I believe that it's just as important as, as loving God well. How we love each other is really a reflection of how we love God. I don't know if you remember that parable of the sheep and the goats. You know, sheep on one side, goats on the other side. And Jesus says, hey, what you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to, to me. How we treat each other is really a reflection of how we're treating God. If you're finding yourself distancing yourself from people around you, ask yourself how, how distant you are from God. You know, So this community dynamic, sharing life, is really part and parcel. It's inseparable to seeking God. So we're going to talk about some things that hopefully are applicable, not just to church life, but to home life, to school life, to relationship life in general. Okay, So let's pray together, and we're going to open up the Bible together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're asking that you would do something special, that you would do something relevant and personal. And God, we realize that when we pray a blessing for ourselves, that actually trickles over. It, it has an overflow impact in how we treat other people. And so we're asking that you would educate us, inspire us, and transform our relationships for your glory's sake. God, I pray that as we open up the Bible, these things would make sense to our intellect, but it would also make a relevant impact to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, amen. All right, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to look at two different stories in the book of Acts. That's what we're going to spend most of our time doing today. Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15. These are two stories in the book of Acts that um, in my last read-through of this book, just really stood out to me. And I tell you, as I was studying it this week, I just wished, man, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you realize the depth, like you you realize that you just bit off more than you could chew. (laughs) So Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15, they probably deserve entire sermon series on their own. But we're going to do a little bit of a kind of case study, look at scene one, look at scene two. And we're going to see how the early church, the apostolic church, this spirit-filled, growing, tremendously church, Dealed with conflict. Here we go. Acts chapter 6. I'm reading from the New King James. I'm going to start in verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was... What does your Bible say? Increasing. Increasing. Cool. Mine says multiplying. All right? So this isn't just one at a... You know, you're not just adding one disciple. This is multiplication of disciples. Now, you remember that Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were added in one day. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 is the number that's given. Acts chapter 6, now it's like, you know, popcorn. Okay, here we go. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. This is talking about uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews. Jews who grew up more in a uh, a Jewish culture and then Jews who actually kind of took in more of the Greek culture and philosophy and even the way that they spoke. Okay, so there's two different groups within the church. There There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Why? Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. 
Apparently, there is some mechanism by which people were able to meet their physical needs, not just by doing it on their own, but by coming to the church. And the church would be able to spread out the wealth, so to speak. Verse 12. Then the twelve, that's the twelve disciples, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and do what? Serve tables. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What in the world is going on? Church is growing by leaps and bounds, multiplying, bursting out the seams. And then there's a complaint. And the first words to the complaint are, hey, we're not going to leave the word of God to serve tables. All right. how, how, how does this all pan out? We're going to put this scene on pause right here. And let's go flip to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. So turn a few chapters. When you're there, say amen. All right, Acts chapter 15. It says this, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. All right, just a little bit of a runway. Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas just get home from this missionary tour. They've, uh, they've been sent out by a church in Antioch. And now they've been, you know, raising up churches in all these different places. I'm not quite sure how long it took them to make full circle, but they get back to Antioch. And at the end of chapter 14, it says they're gathering the church together. They're sharing a praise report about what God is doing. The church is growing. It's not just in Jerusalem. Now it's like all across Asia Minor and things like that. And so it's in those days, in in chapter 15, verse 1, certain men came down from Judea. Interesting, um, Jerusalem and Judea is always seen as the high point and whenever you leave Jerusalem you're going down no matter if you're going south or north or west or whatever you're you're going down from there (laughs) so Antioch is actually north from the map but they're going down from Judea okay and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved so here are these Gentile believers just totally rejoicing in God and now there's this introduction of a, a different kind of thought Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Skip on down to verse 4 when they actually get there. Verse 4, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But, verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Two different scenes. Similar dispute, although the issue is apparently different. There are some similarities here. There's a growing church in Acts chapter 6. There's a growing church in Acts chapter 15. There's a complaint in Acts chapter 6 that became personal. And then there's a theological argument in Acts chapter 15 that also gets a little personal, right? <laughs> yeah, anyways, it gets personal. Uh, so, some, so we see here that the churches are experiencing growth at different times. And so you can see that conflict arises when there are growing pains, so to speak, all right? When there's more people involved in the mix, there's a, more, there's a greater need for over-communicating. There's a greater need for making sure that we're all on the same page, not about conformity, but making sure that the multitude of needs are actually being met. And the issues here are very interesting. One, in Acts chapter 16, the conflict revolves around some sort of complaint, like there, there's, there's something that's not being given. There's something that's being overlooked, uh, the verse, I think it's in Acts chapter 6, it says that they, they felt that they were being neglected or overlooked. And this is oftentimes where we find personal offense, right? Where we feel like our needs are not being met. In the, in the other scene, in Acts chapter 15, you find this group of people, it's not that there's something being withheld, but that they feel as though something is being taken from them. They feel like there's something about their their Jewish background, their Jewish culture, and their history and their identity that's being taken from them. And I'll tell you, whatever complaint or argument or dispute that arises in your home, your classroom, your workplace, your church, at some level, there's someone that feels like they're being overlooked or that they're being taken from. These are the issues that kind of create this stir. 
And it, it takes on different faces. You know, in, in Acts chapter 6, it was the face of, of bread that wasn't being distributed. But they felt like they were being overlooked. Their personal value wasn't being acknowledged. And then in Acts chapter 15, it was about, you know, customs and, and culture and things like that. But really, they, they felt like something was being taken from them. So if you ever find yourself getting kind of snuffy or in a tizzy, ask yourself, what do I feel like is being taken from me? Or what do I feel like is not being given to me? All right, this, is, this is where the give and take of relationships kind of creates this personal sense of being offended. Okay? And so... I would say that this is really, really what's happening behind the scenes here. And so the question that we want to ask is, how do they handle all that? You know, with the multitude of needs, with the multitude of people, I mean, maybe our homes aren't that big as this church, but how do we handle that situation where someone feels like they're being overlooked, that they're not on the same team as us, you know? When they feel as though, or we've done something knowingly or unknowingly to feel like, or to make others feel as though something's being neglected or something's being taken. How do we handle all of that? How do we guard community? How do we preserve relationships and oneness? So we're going to take a look again. Let's go back to Acts chapter 6 and take a look at how they actually resolve this situation really briefly. And then we're just going to kind of synergize and and synthesize things here. Acts chapter 6. So we left off with this comment in verse 2. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. (laughs) What's going on here? Verse 3, the conversation continues. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right, so here is a solution that's found. The apostles, they they don't just kind of take offense to the fact that, oh man, people are complaining about our leadership. Well, let me tell you, I'm just going to exert my leadership even more. No, that's not what they do. That's not what they do. They said, okay, 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 okay. There's a mutually exclusive uh, dynamic that's implied in your complaint. Like, you should leave this in order to take care of what's being neglected, okay? They're, they're identifying it. They're, they're getting real with it. They're not just ignoring it. And so they move in and they start working towards a collaborative solution. They, they work towards it together. And why I say together, it's not like they're just kind of handing out, okay, this is what you do, this is what you do. No, they say, choose from among yourselves, right? I'm giving you the power to, to resolve this solution that you feel neglected about, Okay. This is what good leadership does. It shares leadership. This is really, actually, really, really cool. Okay, so in verse, I think it's in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. In other words, you don't want people who don't represent you to do this. You want yourselves. You want people from among your own ranks to do this. Choose from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. (laughs) Does anybody else's Bible at the end of verse 3 say something different besides the word business? To a point over this business. What does yours say? Well, ours says duty. Duty? Okay, okay. Um, does yours have a different? Task. Task. Okay. So this, uh, the word there is necessity. The Greek word there is necessity. Something that is absolutely necessary. So they're not just saying, okay, let's just do this to make people happy. <laughs> they're saying this is a task. This is a duty. This is a business that is actually worthwhile. What you've brought to the table is something we totally missed. And now we need to pay attention to it. So please help us solve the problem. I love it. But we will give ourselves. Now verse 4, after acknowledging all of this, he draws some lines. The, the, the apostles, they draw some lines saying, look, th- these are our strengths. And we're going to keep leaning into our strengths. Please help us with our weaknesses. Verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. How did this go over with the people? According to verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. That's rad. That's good, good leadership right there. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These were all Hellenists, by the way. These were all Greek-speaking Jews. You tell by their names. These are Greek names. These are not Jewish Hebrew names. 
In verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So there's, there's support. They're not just feeling like they're being replaced. They're like, no, no, we're, we're enlarging the team. We're making space in ministry. We're multiplying ministry. It says they prayed, they laid hands on them, and notice the results of dealing with conflict, talking it through collaboratively, and moving towards a solution together that actually multiplies ministry. What's the result? Verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. I think the Greek word is mega. <laughs> mega multiplied. In Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I tell you what, the way we deal with conflict, there are high stakes. Especially when it's talking about you know, the church circle. It's, it, this is a time when the church was growing. And how they dealt with that conflict could have either sabotaged their growth or just propelled it to further growth. And praise the Lord, God blessed them with heavenly wisdom to navigate this situation in Acts chapter 6. How did they do it in chapter 15? Um, I tell you, conflict keeps coming. It's not like they just dealt with conflict in chapter 6 and everything was hunky-dory after that. Chapter 15 reveals that, man, as the church keeps moving forward and following God's will, there's always going to be dynamics to navigate. Acts chapter 15, how did they deal with it? After, let's see, we, we heard the argument in verse 5. It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. I like that. They, just, they came together to consider this matter. They didn't come together to judge the matter. They didn't come together to, to just shoot it down. They came together to consider it. And when there had arose much dispute... Peter rose up and said to them, and and we're not going to read the entire story here, but what you have is a dialogue. There are different people who stand up to speak at different times. Peter shares, well, you know what? This is what God was doing when I went up to to Samaria. This is what God was doing when I was preaching to a group of non-Jewish people. (laughs) And they responded and they received the Holy Spirit. Actually, I went to a guy named Cornelius' house and this is what happened. So Peter is telling all this story. And then we get down to... I think it's down in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Peter takes a turn. Paul and Barnabas take a turn. Everybody has a chance to contribute to the pool of meaning, so to speak, the dialogue that's going on. And it says in verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. So here, James, kind of at the end of all this discussion, I don't know how long it took, but James kind of provides this voice of reason and he kind of summarizes everything. He says, guys, this is what we've heard. God has worked in the Gentiles' lives over here. God has worked in the Gentiles' lives over here. And so this is what we're going to (laughs) do. It says this, verse 19, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has, been, has had throughout many generations those who preach in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now you might scratch your head and kind of ask, well, what, what was James trying to do? Was he trying to compromise? Okay, the people who want the, the Greek-speaking Jews or the Gentiles to, uh, to kind of cross the line and do everything that the Jewish people have done all throughout their lives? Or is he like trying to kind of pull, find this middle road where, you know what, circumcision, let's not require circumcision because, because that's, that's a big deal. And so, uh, what about these kinds of things? What about just like avoiding these certain foods and this kind of thing? Is, is James like meddling with God's law? Is he, is he just trying to find a happy medium in terms of salvation? Actually, what he's doing is, guys, the Gentiles have been turning to God. They're obviously experiencing God's salvation. We can't stop that. The laws of Moses can't stop that. God is doing it. But what we can do in order to keep community is do these certain practices. And in verse 20, notice what the practices are. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from blood. Okay, I don't know if this is going to make sense. I'm going to try to kind of condense this in just like two minutes. These are coming from Levitical laws in the book of Leviticus that deal with how to, how to accept foreigners into your fellowship. 
This is very interesting. So the issue that James is getting at is, let's do things that aren't about salvation. Don't make the thing about salvation, because the Gentiles are obviously already experiencing salvation. Instead, the bigger picture is not about like how to be saved and how not to be saved. It's, how can I actually have table fellowship with someone who's from a different country from me if I do things differently and they do things differently? He's saying, look, what we can do is this. We'll ask them to do these things so that when we are a church we can still hold fellowship together. Do you follow that? Yes or no? James is trying to say, no, 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 the issue is not about salvation. The issue is, you feel like they're doing things that don't allow you to be one with them. Okay, they're eating certain things that you feel like, oh, I can't touch that, you know? How can I share potluck with someone if when I'm sitting at that table, I feel like I'm defiling my God? No, 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 no. Okay, so, so th- he's, he's trying to like create these dynamics where, look, it's not about salvation. It's about community. It's about community. This is a big deal. And what happens? What happens? Verse 22. What was the response? Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among, from among the brethren. And they wrote this letter. And so now what the church does is, okay, this is great. Yeah, let's do this. Let's just write this down and send a letter, send a text message, but we'll send it with people along with the message. So that they're not just reading our emojis, they see our faces too. <laughs> and they know how excited we are to be able to extend fellowship that the community of God can be whole. This is really awesome. It's really awesome. And it pleased the whole church. Wow. Can we handle conflict like this? <laughs> this is beautiful. So let's, let's, let's just talk this through. I'm sure there are more things that we could say about this, but I'm just going to kind of synthesize things in these two case studies, Acts 6, Acts 15, um, into some best practices for guarding community. Okay, how to firefight in your relationships. Here we go. Guarding community, best practice number one. Minimize the myths. Minimize the myths. This is about an attitude thing. Some of us have this myth that if there is conflict, God is not there. Some of us have a myth that if there is conflict, that's not God's true community. There's a myth in our, in our hearts, whether we are conscious of it or not, whether we articulate it or not, we feel like God's true community, if God were really working in a church, everything would be fine. There would always be harmony and unity. So if there's ever a bump in the road, or if there, were, if there was ever an argument or a misunderstanding, that must not be God's true community. That's a myth. It's a myth. Why do I say that? Because the Acts church that was filled with the Holy Spirit and was multiplying disciples, experienced community. Let's just be real. No community, no relationship, no household, no marriage is immune to conflict. So when your marriage experiences an argument, don't feel like, oh, God is completely absent from this marriage. When your best friend starts to you know, see things a little bit differently from you, don't assume that God has backed off. So, so conflict does not equal absence of God. Conflict equals presence of humanity. Can we be real with that? Yeah. Conflict does not equal absence of God. It simply equals the presence of humanity. Okay? So minimize the myths right now. Because if you keep carrying this expectation that true community, a true marriage, a godly relationship will never have conflict, then when that conflict arises, your world is going to get rocked. Minimize the myths. Go ahead and bust them right now. Okay? Um, When we realize that, okay, conflict is simply evidence of the presence of humanity, it gives us an opportunity to practice the gospel. It gives us the opportunity to actually apply humility actually execute and practice confession and repentance and forgiveness and transformation and trust building. What? You mean this isn't just something I believe intellectually? It's something I actually put into practice? Yes, it's the gospel. And it's the power of God to salvation of all men who believe. Even the Acts Church experienced their share of conflict. So holding on to these kinds of myths, don't let it create unhealthy or unrealistic expectations. Does that sound good? All right. Guarding community. 
Start with minimizing the myths. All right, how about the second one? Best practice that it, just kind of looking at these two things, uh, these two case studies. Talk together. All right, there's actually two, two keys here. First of all, talk. <laughs> I know some of us, um, man, when conflict happens, we can't help but jump to the talking. Some of us, <laughs> some of us are, are very quick to the silence, to the withdrawal, right? And so this is actually something that Acts 6, Acts 15, they both did this. They talked. And they didn't just talk about it. They talked together. Did you notice that? The apostles, when they hear about this complaint, I don't know how they heard about it. If someone directly came and said, hey, I'm feeling like my... You know, my family is being neglected and things like this. Or if they just heard whisperings. I don't know if it came directly. But what they did in response was very direct. Did you notice it? Go back to Acts 6. Go back there. It's, it's, the, the details are there. Very plain. Acts 6. Verse 2. Acts 6 verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. They didn't settle for just, okay, guys, the 12 of us, let's talk this through. (laughs) No, they talked together. They got the entire crowd that was impacted by this. Hey, guys, let's talk. Let's be transparent. Let's open this up to conversation and to dialogue. That's really valuable. In Acts 15, they did the same thing. Um, Notice, remember when Paul and Barnabas, they hear about the dispute? Acts 15, verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Man, if I was in Antioch, surrounded by a whole bunch of Gentile believers who are really growing in the Lord, and they hear these visitors say, oh no, you've actually got to line up with this and line up with that, I'd be like, hey, let's go start a church. <laughs> let's just kind of, this is, this is what you would call unhealthy church planting. <laughs> this is unhealthy church splitting or something. But no, that's not what they settle for. They don't settle for just like kind of settling it on their own and just say, okay, forget them. No, they talk together. They talk together. It's simple, but it's very intentional. They get together and they don't, they don't settle for letters back and forth, okay? They don't settle for text messages back and forth. This is a really big deal. They, they go for FaceTime. They go for FaceTime. And this may be a habit that needs to be unbroken or undone in our generation. A lot of times we settle for the most instant communication of how to convey our feelings. But I tell you what, those text messages and emails, they don't cut it. They don't. Can we be honest with that? They don't. I remember uh, picking up in high school some basic principles of communication. There's, there's verbal communication, right? And then there's what? Nonverbal communication. In 1967, there's a book that came out, Nonverbal Communication. Morabian, this uh, kind of psychologist or whatever, communication um, guy, he, he came up with this 7% rule. I don't know if he called it the 7% rule or somebody else has since determined it, the 7% rule. But that in our communication, especially when there's incongruent information between what we're saying and what we're expressing, only 7% of what is communicated and picked up is based upon the very words that are said or written. The other 93% is nonverbal. 55% body language, 38% tone of voice. Yeah, we picked this up. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> this is a big deal. This is a big deal. I learned this at the young age of a senior in high school <laughs> at the feet of, anyways, my youth pastor. Um, 55% body language, 38% tone of voice. When you text, can we talk right now? The other person hears, can we talk right now? <laughs> or the other person can hear, Hey, can we talk? You know, like, it, depending, and again, this is why we have emojis and we try to put a face to our words. Do you see the principle there? We're trying to put a face to our words. Why? Because so much of what we communicate is based upon not just the words themselves. When somebody texts back and says, sure, that could be either, sure, 
or sure. You know, <laughs> all sorts of ways to communicate different kinds of messages. And so the fact that the, this, these, in these two scenes, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 15, they talked together. And remember in Acts 15, when they actually wrote letters back to the Gentile churches, they didn't just depend upon the letters to communicate what they wanted. They actually sent people with those letters. Why? Why? Because FaceTime is the most critical, especially when there's conflict. Okay? Now, I tell you, this can be super, super hard because you don't, like when you're experiencing conflict with somebody, you don't want to be in their face. <laughs> I mean, you want to be in their face. You don't want to show, anyways, okay. <laughs> but the point is that it's hard. It's hard to talk together. So let, let's ask this question before we get to our third best practice for garden community. When you do get together, how do you talk together? So it's constructive. Right? Have you ever wondered this? How do you talk together? Um, this is not, uh, again, this is not exhaustive, but this is just a simple attempt to pull from Acts 16 and Acts 15 some simple principles. So talking tools, really quick. Um, first one is this. The first one is this. Acknowledge the issue. Okay? Acknowledge the complaint. Um, I think it says here, acknowledge the complaint. Okay? In Acts 6, they said, you know, they, they got plain with the issue. Okay, 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 okay. You want us to leave the word of God so that we can serve tables. <laughs> Acknowledge it. In Acts 15, um, people are able to express, no, they need to be circumcised in order for them to be saved. They need to keep the law of Moses in order for them to be saved. So acknowledge the dissension. Acknowledge the dispute. Give words to it. Don't simply ignore it and assume that everybody understands it. No, no, no. When we, when we operate on assumptions, things get, things get crazy. Someone's arguing something that has no relevance to what you're thinking about. Okay, so acknowledge it. So just get it out on the table. Put it out so that everybody can see all around it. And the, the reality is that a lot of times when it comes to talking and stuff, we'll try to ignore it. We'll try to get straight to the feelings of neglect without really addressing the actual issue that's causing the neglect of, or the feeling of neglect. We'll try to get straight to the theology, the, the right or wrong dynamics of, of the theology of the argument before actually addressing, okay, this is what you're saying. This is what you're opposing. This is what you're feeling. Okay? So acknowledge the complaint and dispute. Complaining and disputing happens. Again, we, we talked about this. It happens, the, the complaint happens, the dispute happens when someone in the, the mix feels as though something of personal value is being taken or withheld. Right? Um, for the Acts chapter 6 church, they felt like uh, they, they weren't being given uh, what they deserved. In Acts chapter 15, they were feeling as though their cultural values were being taken from them. So, and it's not just material things that are being taken or withheld. It's, sometimes it's intangible things. In your marriage, you may feel like time is being taken from you or time is being withheld. Uh, you may feel as though respect isn't being given to you. That love isn't being poured into your cup. In the workplace, you may feel as though, yeah, you're not being given your dues. You're, you're putting in all the work, but you're not being acknowledged or recognized. I don't know what community sphere you're experiencing your conflict in, but, but just acknowledge it. Acknowledge the complaint. Acknowledge the issue. And let me just say something about timing also. Choose the best time. When you're talking about getting together to talk, yeah, you want to acknowledge the dispute, acknowledge the complaint, but also do it at the right time. Um, the, generally speaking, sooner is better than later. But if sooner means that you have a hot head that can't think straight, then later is better. Okay? You follow? Yeah? So choose the best time. Sooner is usually better, but choose the best time on your emotional stability and capacity to think humbly. Okay? So acknowledge the complaint. Choose the best time. I don't know. The, the, in Acts chapter 6, you don't really have an idea of how quickly, you know, how much time lapsed between the disciples hearing the complaint and then gathering the whole multitude to talk about it. In Acts chapter 15, you have the entire span of time of however long it takes Paul and Barnabas to actually walk all the way to Jerusalem. Okay, so along the way, you know, time can allow things to fester, but also time can allow things to be processed and say, okay, Let's, let's get to what we're really after, not just to be proving ourselves right, but making relationships whole. Okay? So, acknowledge the complaint. Choose the best time. And the last one is this. Know when and how to listen. What? You mean that when I go to talk, I am not there just to lay down my argument and drop the bomb, drop the mic, and walk away? No. 
Know when and how to listen. Notice again, Acts 15, if you're still there, you still have your Bible open. Acts 15, verse 12. There's a really, uh, really pointed phrase here. Acts 15, verse 12. The Bible says this. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened. Those are some simple words. But they make a huge difference. This multitude, I don't know how riled up they were about the argument that, hey, you've got to do this in order to be saved. But they had the patience of mind or the capacity to actually keep silent and listen for a bit. This is a big deal. Why? Because people need time to give the story behind their complaint. People need time to give their side of the story. We may hear the initial complaint, but the reality is that the words, oh man, Proverbs 18.4 says it really like this. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. We can also say that the words of a woman's mouth are deep waters, right? Okay, what do I mean by that? Deep waters. When you're swimming out in the deep sea, I don't know if you've swam in a swimming pool eight feet deep, you can see kind of the bottom, but when you're swimming like in a lake or in an ocean, for me, that gets a little eerie. Like, I have no idea what's down there, right? You start kind of feeling around, you want to, you know, you get, try to get down and just, how deep does this really go? Deep waters can be scary. Why? Because you don't see them. You don't understand them. It's a mystery. What the Proverbs are saying is that the words of a man's mouth, the words of a woman's mouth, there's depth that sometimes you don't see on the surface. You follow? Yeah? So, when a spouse says, does this dress look good on me? There are deep waters there. Okay? (laughs) Uh, Anyways, okay. This doesn't happen in our home. (laughs) Okay, but the point is... (laughs) The point is this. (laughs) The point is this. We need time for people to explain their deep waters. We need to listen. We need to be quiet, keep silent, and listen so that the deep waters can be cleared up. And this is what happened. In this story, in Acts chapter 15, what happens? Paul and Barnabas, they're sharing their side of the story. Peter has an opportunity to share a little bit about what God has been doing in the Gentile churches and stuff. And now, the disputers, they're able to see a side of this story that they had no knowledge of before. They're able to say, whoa, the Gentiles are experiencing salvation even before they started keeping the law of Moses. God is doing something that I didn't anticipate. Why were they able to conclude that? Because they kept silent and listened. Sometimes it's in the keeping silence that we actually realize that what I have concluded is simply a story that I've told myself and not true fact. Is that possible? (laughs) That you see your your co-worker's behavior and you're telling yourself, man, they just totally dissed me. They totally disrespected me. They have no regard for my contribution to the workplace. When in reality, they were thinking about something completely different. Their, you know, their uncle just passed away and they're feeling like, oh man, I have, you know, their, their mind is somewhere else and you feel like they've ignored you. What in the world? Come on. There's a story there. There are deep waters that we haven't discovered. A lot of times we see people's behavior. We hear people's words and we assume that they're against us or they're intended for this uh, negative purpose or that, you know, kind of dynamic And the reality is there's probably a story that we haven't heard. Uh, Knowing when to listen, that requires humility. That requires us to be able to step back and ask ourselves this very simple but profound question. If you want to write it down, you can write it down. The question is this. Why would a reasonable, loving person do that or say that? Nobody's writing it down. When you see offensive behavior or when you see something that totally ticks you off and you feel like you're taking it personal, you're getting all riled up and emotional about it, stop the bullet train of your emotional thoughts just for a moment to ask this. Why would a reasonable, loving person do that or say that? You'll probably end up with several different stories than the first one that you told yourself. 
Yeah? Are you writing it down yet? Okay. <laughs> Why would a reasonable, loving person... In other words, assume the best about somebody's intentions before you draw your conclusion. And how do you do that best? Well, first you need to get together and talk. And say, can you... Okay, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. Can you tell me the story behind it? I don't know if you've ever heard of a book. Justin and I have been talking about it a lot. It's a book called Crucial Conversations. Any, anybody? Yeah. yeah, Crucial Conversations. Really quality stuff. Very simple, common sense things that we're seeing in the book of Acts, but they articulate it in, in terms of like secular business circles and stuff. This is how you handle conflict in the workplace and stuff. But that's basically it. Ask yourself that question. Why would a reasonable loving person say that? And then listen. Listen for the story because it's probably different than the one that you told yourself. All right. Okay, so those are tools for talking. Um, Let's see here, yeah. Acknowledge the complaint. Choose the best time. Know when and how to listen. All right, so back to guarding community. This is how we minimize myths. This is how we talk together, just like the Acts Church did it. And what's the last best practice? The third one is simply this. Step back to see big. Step back to see big. In other words you may be totally enthralled in this theological argument. So the Acts 15 church, they're, they're kinda, they, there was a temptation to kind of get back to the scriptures and say, okay, wait, 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 but this verse says this, and this verse says that, and you know, things like this. But I love how James was able to step back and see the big picture. Say, so, wait, 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 okay, we've seen salvation happen for the Gentiles. So really what's going on is not an issue about salvation, and the guys, when you're disputing these things, what you're really worried about is, or what you should be worried about is, how can I maintain community with people that are different from me? Right. That's what James does. He, sees, he, he takes a step back a little bit, and he says, you know what, I bet that even these disputers want to engage in community with the people that they're disputing against. There's probably a mutual common ground, a mutual purpose that we can gather around, and that is sharing life, sharing community, experiencing God's salvation, no matter what background they're coming from. And James does that. He's able to step back, see the big picture. The apostles in Acts chapter 6, they're able to do the same thing. You guys, uh, this is a real need. This is a necessity. But there's also the big picture of the ministry of the Word of God and prayer, and how do we keep moving this forward while taking care of the minutiae of this necessity, right? They're able to step back and see the big picture. Let's do this together. A lot of times when you're looking for solutions, it will require first stepping back to see big. Okay? Um, I don't know, maybe it's my tendency only, but some of you may resonate with this, that when you see an issue, hear someone's complaint, you just want to get right to that issue and adjust it and fix it and turn the knob a little bit. But what if there's something bigger that's really behind the issue? And that's the point of stepping back to see big. It's community. It's all about getting the, uh, getting the gospel out in Acts 6 and in Acts 15. It's about, about maintaining a sense of fellowship and things like this. Okay, so step back to see big. I don't know. For you, if it's in the home circle, in the marriage, parent-child, uh, co-workers, church life, where you need to implement or practice, put into practice these simple things. Um, but I tell you what, it will yield eternal value. It will yield eternal value. It's interesting, in Acts, um, sorry, just kind of stepping away from Acts 6 and Acts 15, Paul, who is in the thick of this whole dispute at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he writes elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian church, he writes about spiritual battles. I don't know if you're familiar with that. He talks about taking on the full armor of God. In Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, just going to step, up, step back a little bit. He says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. It's really interesting. I was reading this um, not too long ago, and it dawned on me that Ephesians 6 comes right after Ephesians 5. <laughs> what? Yeah! In Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. Talks to wives and says, submit to your husbands. Let there be mutual respect. And then he goes on and says, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Then he talks about slaves and slave owners, employees and employers, and those relationships. And then he comes to this. Put on the whole armor of God. You're going to need it in those relationships. 
Notice the argument that he's saying. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Those conflicts that you've got here, the battle is not on the human level. The battle is here. He has in mind the human conflict when he's talking about the armor of God. So let's think about the armor of God really quick. Belt of truth. Uh, Breastplate of righteousness. Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. Shoes the gospel of peace. Uh, Prayer. The sword of the spirit. All these things. Do you realize that those are all things that guard your relationships? Truthfulness and honesty are going to hold your relationships together. Integrity is going to cover the heart of those vital organs in your relationships, right? Faith, trust, that is going to make your relationships run. Salvation, the assurance of your salvation and your right standing with God is going to impact the way you are able to help others stand right with God. Oh, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And then there's this one piece of armor that always seems like an outlier to me. It always seems a little bit different because you got the shield of faith, belt of truth, helmet of salvation. But then there's this that requires a whole lot of description. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It doesn't say shoes of the gospel, right? It says there's a readiness that, comes on, that, that should be shod around your feet that comes from what? The gospel of peace. And this is really interesting to me. Because the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves and not me, myself... It yields a peace that allows for security of standing, but also generates movement. Okay, let me say this again. The readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the good news that Jesus saves, actually generates movement. It allows for me to move freely in this battle. What kind of movement are we talking about? In the context of this relationships. It's not battling against flesh and blood. It's not husband and you're fighting against your wife, wife against husband, not child against parent, parent against child, employer to employee, things like that. No, no, no. The gospel of peace should give you shoes to move towards each other. Think about this. Think about this. The fact that you are saved, the fact that the blood of Jesus has undeservingly covered your faults should give you the power to move towards each other for peace. Because Jesus saves me and pardons my sin, it empowers me to move towards someone who has offended me. Because God demonstrated his love toward me while I was still his enemy, I can demonstrate love towards that person while we still don't understand each other. That's what the gospel of peace does. It gives my feet the ability to move. Do you follow it? Do you follow it? In your marriage, in your workplace, in your church family, the gospel empowers us to share life. Don't try to share life apart from the gospel. It's impossible. It's impossible to do it in a way that's healthy and sustainable. It's impossible. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus alone can do it. See, the gospel tells a story of a God who moved from his throne to those who left him. The gospel tells the story of a God who moved towards Adam and Eve when they were running from him. The gospel tells the story of a God who left his throne to seek and save the one lost sheep, even before we were looking for the shepherd. The gospel tells the story of Gethsemane's darkness of Calvary's curse, and yet Jesus, who very well could have called angels down from heaven and come off that cross, stayed there so that you and I could be reconciled to him. That's what the gospel tells the story of. And when I have the gospel on my feet, it allows me to reenact that story again and again in that relationship, in this circle, in that community. So have you put on the gospel of peace? (laughs) Have you put on the shoes that allow you to move and not just stand in your corner waiting for that other person to say sorry? The gospel of peace moves us. The gospel of peace moves us. 
So think about the circles of community that you, you cherish in the home, at church, at friendship, that workplace. Think of your circles of community that you want to share life with. Receive the gospel today so you can extend the gospel today. This morning I was reading something in a little book called God's Amazing Grace. And, you know, a few weeks ago we were talking about abiding in the upper room and taking time each day just to dwell on the cross and the merits of the cross and what Jesus has given. And so every now and then, you know, like I said, I'll read from Matthew 27 or Mark 15 or, or Luke uh, 21 or whatever, the, or 23, whatever the case might be. But every now and then I'll throw in this, uh, this portion of this book, God's Amazing Grace. It's a devotional. And the devotional entries for the month of June are all about the, the cross. It's really awesome. And so this is what I was reading today. It says this. The guilt of every sin pressed its weight upon the divine soul, the world's redeemer. The evil thoughts, the evil words, the evil deeds of every son and daughter of Adam called for retribution upon himself. Though the guilt of sin was not his, his spirit was torn and bruised by the transgressions of men. As you look upon Jesus today, realize that the guilt of every sin that's what he was bearing when he was in the garden of gethsemane saying man my soul is deeply distressed even to death when he's there on the cross saying my god my god why have you forsaken me he's not feeling his own sin he's feeling the guilt of every sin from every son and daughter of adam now as i was reading this this morning i was realizing you know what when i think about the cross and what jesus was bearing on the cross you know by his stripes we are healed. I'm, I'm usually thinking about my transgressions in terms of what I've done wrong. You know, what I've done wrong against God, how I've been disobedient, or how I've fallen short of his standard and of his glory. But as I was reading this this morning, with this sermon in mind, I was realizing, you know what? We do wrong, not just in this relationship, but in this relationship. And could it be that on the cross, Jesus took the guilt of every sin, not just this way, but this way. So that by his stripes, not just this could be healed, but this could be healed. When you look to Jesus today, would you let him heal these sins? Maybe it's something that we said. Maybe it's something that we did. Maybe it's something they said. That's something they did. God can heal that. By the power of the cross. He died for that privilege. He died for that power. For you to experience not just the power of, okay, I have part in this way. But that God can actually heal. Span the distances that you're feeling in your relationships. I don't know how. Sometimes it takes two to tango, so to speak. There's someone on the other side of that distance that needs to be able to accept and rely upon the power of the gospel too. But by the grace of God, will you choose? Will you choose to hang on? to the gospel of peace. So you know what? I'm going to put on those shoes and I'm going to be ready to move. I'll move as much as I can and sometimes that other person needs to move too in order for you to really bridge the gap. But you know what? I'm going to be moving. I'm going to be moving anyway. And this is what the story of the gospel, the God who left his throne to seek and save the lost, he was moving long before we were moving to him. Will you do it too? Will you accept the gospel of peace today? You know, when, when there's a community like that, when there are relationships like that, when there's a household like that, I tell you what, people cannot but help to see the glory of God. That's why he says in John 13, we saw it last week, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, when you have love for one another, when you love as I have loved. And today the song team is going to come up and lead us in a response song called Overwhelmed. And I just love this, this connection that, that when we demonstrate, when we receive the gospel of peace, when we extend the gospel of peace, could it be that the world around us will be overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God? I pray that that would be our, our, our experience. So let's, let's bow our heads together and we'll sing a song of praise. Father in heaven, we're asking today for a miracle. The miracle of sharing life is not something that, that any one of us can manufacture only by the grace and power of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We want to surrender to you the relationships that we are burdened by today. 
one or surrendered to you the relationships that seem so cold and so hopeless. And we ask God for the power of the gospel of peace. Lord, please overwhelm us right now with your mercy. And as we experience life that is truly shared by the power of the gospel, I pray that the world around us would be overwhelmed by your mercy too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.